0: If you've been enjoying the La Brea but not sticking around for the last moments, you should know that if you want to contribute, you can email shout at yallherd.me with your contributions, questions, or theories. I'd love to hear from you. Probably. You seem cool. Welcome to another episode of the La Brea Purveyor, where we recap and deep dive into the NBC sci-fi adventure drama La Brea. I am your purveyor, Pete Phillips. This week, I think we may be seeing one of the best episodes of La Brea, and I'll explain why as this goes on. But otherwise, we have things that are supposed to be revelations and things that are actual revelations. Levi returns, 10 years older, Ty pretty much gets cured from brain cancer, and Kira begins to emerge as a more formidable force than previously expected. Episode Recap We open on a giant woolly rhino. Thank God we see a giant animal right away. They're not making us wait, and that is merciful. Thank you, La Brea. The rhino is scared, though, when an aurora opens up and a shadowy figure steps through. It's Levi— We don't know that it's Levi yet, but it's Levi. Meanwhile, the Harris family is in a weird situation. Suddenly, Eve is hurt from her fall last episode. If you recall, Eve didn't just escape from a bear by running away with a bunny in her arms after having her leg pinned under a rock for a long time, but she also walked all the way back to the clearing without the bunny. But this episode, she's so messed up from it that she can't move out of the Harris family bus and she faints partway through the episode. But when they find out that Gavin is going to talk to James, he revisits whether James is trustworthy or not. But Josh defends his father, just to be a hassle. Remember when he hated his father for no reason? Now he loves his father for no reason. Shut up, Josh. Later, Izzy smacks Josh in what I think is probably the most ridiculous scene in this episode. There's also an awkward scene between Veronica and Lucas. He suggests that they move in together, and since they're both intimacy deficient, they kind of just back away from each other. Virgil, who probably killed Wyatt last episode, convinces Scott to let him be redeemed by taking over Scott's post, watching for the possible return of the exiles. Scott really does well standing his ground, but as a guy who's also trying to be redeemed himself, he's a sucker for Virgil's position. So Virgil takes over and signals to the exiles that it's time to storm the castle, so to speak. We think Virgil is a big old jerk in this moment, but it turns out that he has a reason that he's helping the exiles. They have his wife, and her name is Jane. So the exiles storm into the clearing, and they start turning things over and dumping out people's belongings. They're searching for something, or someone. They're really just being a nuisance. Scott, though, is afraid, because he thinks they're looking for him. Remember how Tamit said he was going to come back and kill Scott? Well, he's back, so Scott is hiding in the bus with Eve. Scott is ready to go outside and face the music because, as I said, he thinks they're looking for him. Eve says it's a drastic move, which is laughable. Eve is lecturing someone on impulse control. <laughs> but Scott goes out because he sees that Izzy and Josh are moments away from being seen by the Exiles. Also, as I said, Eve faints, and she doesn't do much of anything for the rest of the episode. When Scott goes out, the exiles grab him quickly, and damn it, shows up. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Meanwhile, Gavin crosses paths with Levi, and he's all happy about it, but of course he's concerned, too. Levi has grayed in his hair, and his beard makes him look wise. New sinkholes, they just keep opening up. So I assume your mission to destroy the machine failed. You know, after we split, I never stopped trying to bring you guys home. I joined with the DOD. They got a team trying to stop the sinkholes and rescue everyone trapped down here so you're gonna bring us all back that's the plan <laughs> i don't know what to say no thank it's a good start okay thank you <laughs> what you told me doesn't add up what doesn't why you came down here what well, there's something you're not telling me that's not what you're thinking what am i thinking And i'm back for eve gavin for me it's been over a decade what happened between her and i is ancient history so why are you back one of the people on my team. She was more than just a colleague. Her name was Marissa. We fell in love. Got married. So what happened? She died. I didn't know what to do. I could honor her memory by coming down here and finishing what she started. Kevin, that's why I'm here. That's uh, a, lie. That's a lie. One thing, though. Levi seems a little suspicious of James. It's not obvious until the end of the episode, but there is a hint of it here in these early interactions with Gavin. Oh, did I tell you that Ty is getting cancer treatment? He's feeling better, and he is going to have his first therapy appointment with James. That's the way he pays off his cancer treatment. Kira gives him, like, an electronic tablet to take notes on, but he says that a legal tab would be better for him. And when she gives him one, she writes on it, don't trust James. Find out about Project oh and riley she's upset that she lied to josh about caroline finding notes from dr moore put a pin in that because we actually don't see caroline in this episode but dr moore sure does make a spiritual appearance actually you know what let's just get to it right now Back at the Exiles' attack, we find out that they're looking for a brown moleskin notebook with a green binding. Once it's described, Ella and Veronica recognize it. It belonged to Aaron, their fake father. He never let it leave his sight. So, when he died, Veronica honored that and buried him with it. According to a lot of sources, standard copy paper could last up to 200 years if stored properly. From a Stack Exchange user who sounded very smart, they said... Archival paper can last a major fraction of a century in good condition with proper storage. Cheap printer paper, not so much. After a few decades, it can start to become brittle. Also, controlled humidity is critical. Fluctuating humidity makes the paper expand and contract, contributing to weakening it. High humidity leads to mildew, and pigment ink can retain longer than dye ink, but for archival timeframes, this isn't the biggest problem. If Moore is using a book that's covered in moleskin, that would protect the cover, sure, but the pages on the inside would likely be inexpensive and unable to last so long. So are these pages 1,200 years old, or are they a lot less? Tamit says if they don't find dead Aaron and get the book, that they're going to kill Scott. And Scott is kind of willing to die. He wants to stay alive, but he also seems to acknowledge that death is possible and that he'd be deserving because he made a deal with a madman. Sam and Riley, who have Jane, you know, Virgil's wife, cross paths with Gavin and Levi, and they go toward the clearing to save the day. But Izzy is flashing Morse code with a rearview mirror from a car. Why do they give this actor so little to work with? Gavin understands Morse code because he taught her And the group follows her advice. They go to take out the small group of exiles who are escorting Veronica, Ella, and Lucas on their grave-robbing expedition, and then come back to the camp with more numbers. In his first session with Ty, James admits that he hasn't slept for a month. What? He says the last time he slept, he had a stress dream about pine trees losing all of their needles before they went to go back to the future. He said it was a silly dream based on a real delivery that happened the next day. When Ty searches for meaning in that, James bails. I don't want any part of therapy. Don't ask for therapy if you don't want it, James. No one's making you talk to Ty. This is all your idea. And boy does he, later when Ty confronts him, about how there was no actual shipment of these pine trees that occurred. And Ty says, what I said, you're doing us no favors by lying during therapy. So James comes clean. It wasn't a dream that woke me It was a nightmare About the day Isaiah was taken I dreamt I went to go and wake him up And I found his bed empty And I looked everywhere Even though I knew it was hopeless And the dream, it was so real What did it bring back? When I lost him The emptiness It made me do something unthinkable I went to my gun case I unlocked a pistol Put it to the side of my head and I pulled the trigger, but the gun's chamber was empty because I'd taken out all the bullets to keep Isaiah safe. Even though Isaiah was gone, he still saved me. You can have a relationship with Gavin and still hold space for the memory of Isaiah. He would color here every day. Here, you know, here are a few of his drawings. The blue moon. That's beautiful, isn't it? So, to understand this, right, Gavin is not Isaiah. He is not a little boy, and James wants a life with his son, not just a relationship with his adult son. But how on earth could he ever make that happen? Oh, I get it. After Levi wastes five bullets shooting them into the air to scare the exiles that are with Veronica, Ella, and Josh... Then the Gavin Gang ties up the group of exiles and heads to the clearing. From HowStuffWorks.com On New Year's Eve 2017, Democratic member of the Texas House of Representatives, Armando Martinez, stepped outside a home and suddenly felt as if he'd been struck with a sledgehammer. After he was rushed to the hospital, it turned out that he'd been struck in the top of the head by a falling bullet a fragment of the round penetrated the top of his skull and lodged itself in the top layer of his brain requiring surgery to remove it. Martinez, who recovered from his injury, became another victim of the strange custom of celebratory gunfire, or in this case, warning gunfire, in which revelers fire bullets into the air that eventually fall back to earth and occasionally hit other people. Representative Martinez sought to keep others from being hit by falling bullets by introducing legislation raising the penalties for discharging a firearm without an intended target. In late 2022, he introduced House Bill 1138 to address celebratory gunfire. Right now, celebratory or reckless gunfire is a Class A misdemeanor punishable by up to a year in prison and a fine of up to $4,000 in Texas cities with a population of 100,000 or more. If House Bill 1138 passes, it would expand the current law to all areas of Texas, no matter the size. Just as Scott is facing Tamit's machete knife thing, Scott tells the exiles in all ways that they are an epic fail. Luckily, someone spears an exile, which distracts Tammet because those would be the worst last words of all time, Scott. After a scuffle, Scott stabs Tamit. Kind of by mistake, but mostly in self-defense. At this point, it's unclear if Tamit is dead. Now, with the threat neutralized, they look at the book the Exiles were so bent on getting. Its figures and numbers, with a couple of pages torn out. You know, like the pages from last episode, the ones Dr. Moore had, where he was going to figure out the safe time travel without sinkholes. So, the guy who brought Veronica and Lily to La Brea and then fell into a sinkhole with them to 10,000 BC had the notebook that mastered time travel. Okay, then. So, Kira and Ty are talking in some open green space where she concludes with Ty that Project Blue Moon must be James's goal to go back in time and prevent Isaiah from being taken with him. Which means that Gavin wouldn't go to 1988... Wouldn't meet Eve, wouldn't have kids, etc., etc. But it also means, as Kira is quick to point out, that Ty dies of cancer because he never gets to 10,000 BC, finds the Lazarus building, and also he never meets Para. While we're on Kira, with his dying words, Tamit admits to the gang that Kira is the one who sent the exiles to find the how to time travel notebook, not James. The man who took me had a Book from 10,000 BC that might be the key to getting us home. So, Aaron took us to La Brea that day. It's like he knew the sinkhole was coming, he wanted to be there. <laughs> None of it, it makes any sense. Well, I couldn't agree more. When the dust settles, Veronica moves in with Lucas. They have a heart to heart, they kiss. Aw. Happy Valentine's Day. In the final moments of the episode, Eve wakes up from her fainting spell slash recovery nap, and Gavin's like, hey, what's up? I found a notebook today. He really buries the lead about Levi, but she is happy when she sees Levi. She goes and she hugs him, and Levi tells her that he lied to Gavin. He doesn't have any way for them to get home. He's actually here to do the one thing that will set everything right kill James. what just happened okay before i get into some questions and answers i want to explain to you why i think this is a perfect episode of la brea or if you're going to fight me a near perfect episode one there's a giant animal and lucky for us it's right at the start two there's no gavin eve levi romance nonsense three there's fighting four there's lying Five, there's romance. Six, there's a cliffhanger. Seven, there are background extras. And that might not matter to you, but it really matters to me. I love seeing people in the background and remembering that there are more people there than just this core cast of characters that we see all the time. Eight, there's an almost impossible time paradox revealed. Nine, we're reminded that people are somehow sleeping in cars and not waking up every single day with body aches. And ten... Josh is an annoying pain in the ass. <laughs> okay, so now let's start thinking about this cliffhanger that occurred. Levi is here to, quote, do the one thing that will set everything right, which he says is kill James. We don't have enough details to know exactly what this means. Like, when one seeks to, quote, set everything right, right is often determined by that person. So what is right to Levi? Levi. Based on his backstory, it would be no more sinkholes and success for his team that was trying to stop the sinkholes. Basically, is his plan going to be leaving everyone in 10,000 BC? And what does killing James at this point achieve? Does that mean there's no more future sinkholes? Okay, so if it's 1998 and Levi goes back in time to 10,000 BC, then he kills James, then no future sinkholes happen except If the Clearing Clan are already there, do they get stranded or do they disappear because there was no hole in 2021? That would undo all of the stuff happening to them. But wouldn't it also undo Levi meeting Marissa and coming back into the lives of the Harrises? If that happened, then Levi wouldn't go back to 1988, live through to 1998, and then come back again. So he's not going to succeed in killing James, right? That's a very good question. Also, how does a guy from 1988 who has no ID, no birth certificate, no social security card, get a job with the Department of Defense? I would think that they have some pretty strict hiring standards, you know? That's a very good question. Is Lucas's arm still messed up? I know that that's not the most delicate way to put it, but he seems to be pretty mobile and agile in this episode. So narratively, what was the point exactly of his arm being affected in the last two episodes? What I'm getting at here is not necessarily an inconsistency. I actually want to know, is Lucas fully cured from that stun gun virus thing that he had in the fall finale? That's a very good question. Do not think for a second that I forgot about the cow. Where is the cow with the barcode? Are we going to explain the cow? Or is the cow what James was eating last episode when Ty was asking him for help? That's a very good question. Based on what we've received in this episode, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that Aaron is Dr. Moore. But if that's true, then who is the skeleton? I don't know that Aaron and Moore are the same person. Maybe they were colleagues. Maybe Aaron needed to work out some calculations in the future where they had more things to figure stuff out with. So he hopped in a portal, figured them out, and then planned to bring them back to Dr. Moore. We had like 10 minutes with Aaron before he got chomped by a wolf, so we really don't know much about him. We do know that he kidnapped two girls, one that was significantly integral to the whole process of getting Isaiah to become Gavin. Or maybe Aaron's a really bad dude who killed Moore, stole the book, and planned to come back and give it to James. Or Kira. Who knows? That's a very good question. And while we're here, do we trust Kira now? I feel like they painted her with very suspicious brushstrokes this episode. But I'm still with her. Think about it. That Blue Moon project could upend so much. So if she's trying to get that notebook, then that would make sense. Get it so that James doesn't. And then there's the secret chats with Ty. I'm wondering, is her character being manipulative by bringing up Ty's cancer, not getting cured? Or was that something that the writers wanted to remind us so that it would up the stakes for Ty and the decisions he makes moving forward. This episode has me really wondering about Kira because she was so dedicated to James when we first met her, but now she seems like she's trying to undermine him. So are her intentions noble or not so noble? And what does it say about my taste in women that I think Kira is hot? That's a very good question. Digging deeper. Let's dig deeper on Veronica, guys. Her story keeps bubbling up here in season two. Veronica came on the scene aggressively hostile towards others. She processes emotions in unusual ways, like disappearing to bury her dead father, putting up thick walls between herself and others, running away when explaining herself would be more helpful, and almost always brooding with emotion. The reason for all of this becomes clear in season one, when we discover that she and Lily are not sisters, but are fellow abductees. Her father wasn't her father, but just a scary man who abducts children. On the La Brea subreddit, one user says that it's impossible that it wasn't a sexual abduction, that he had Veronica for years, then kidnapped Lily because Veronica was too old to have sex with anymore. I could see this narrative, but I don't think that it's a sure bet. There's also a question of the religiosity of Lily and Veronica when they came to the camp. They both just seemed to read Bibles all the time, but otherwise I didn't detect anything overtly religious. The burial of Aaron was a ceremonial thing, which can sometimes feel religious, but isn't always. And I feel like the last contributor to the religious angle is that Veronica was very strict with Lily, and strictness can sometimes be mistaken for religious discipline. But if we're really forcing this religious issue, could someone take a girl in off the streets and provide her with a home and food as a sort of twisted act of evangelism? Or could someone take in a kid off the street because they want to have a child of sorts, someone that they could pass things along to, for example, in an effort to feel powerful and leave some sort of legacy? Also, when I clicked on the Reddit user who began that thread, they sounded kind of creepy and inappropriate towards women anyway, so maybe they just figured you wouldn't take a girl unless you wanted to have sex with them, and that's their problem. Regardless of reason or nature, Veronica developed an extreme dependency on Aaron, so when he was killed, her world was rocked even more than falling through a sinkhole. She also takes the mantle of caring for Lily out of love by way of self-preservation. Over the season, she goes through a lot of guilt and remorse, but she rockets into season two with a sense of purpose and repentance she began a romance with lucas and i think that's great for both of them but as i've said previously she seems caught between ella wanting her to spend more time with her trauma and lucas who sometimes seems too unaware of her trauma i think that she's doing her best and with all the Aaron stuff coming to the surface recently we may finally see her contribute to the larger plot of the show which i'm excited about i can't say that i love veronica but i do like her i think her plight is worthwhile but also out of place in a sci-fi adventure series. Her mistrust and anxiety are valid, but for a show that has characters get over childhood trauma and PTSD in one episode, it's odd that Veronica's is what defines her. To that end, I have to admit I'm happy every single time she smiles. It just makes me happy for her. Lily Santiago plays Veronica, and she seems like a happy person in real life. Much like Zyra Gorecki, who plays Izzy, She seems genuinely happy to have the opportunity to be in the show and get more experience. Lily has a twin brother, Trey, and her father is an actor, playwright, and director. She's not just a screen actor either. In fact, you could catch her in King Lear this February 23rd through April 2nd at the Klein Theater in Washington, D.C. Judging from her social media, she loves tropical temperatures, fun with friends, and animals, though not necessarily CGI ones. IN THE MEDIA REVIEWS. Based on last episode's In the Media Reviews, I posted a poll to the La Brea subreddit, and 65% of respondees hope that the show ends with a satisfying resolution next season. 16% hope that the show continues with or without the Harris family, while 14% of haters say that they'd like to see the show end as soon as possible. This week, Nicholas Gonzalez, a.k.a. Levi, graced the pages of Parade, promoting his comeback in this week's episode. Here are some selections that lead us into the next few episodes. This is a Q&A format, so the questions are coming from Parade. Upon his return, Levi lied to Gavin about the reason for his return to 10,000 BC. Can we trust him? It all depends on who we is and who you're rooting for. But I think as we start to hear more and more, Levi has his motivations. As far as our heroes, if we can trust Levi, well... Levi is working off of a lot more information than they have, and he has to take matters into his own hands and those of the shadowy organization that has sent him back. Will Eve help him? She didn't trust James initially, but now Levi is essentially asking her to betray her husband once again. It's tough, you know. I mean, the funny thing, too, is to realize how much time has passed from when we were in the mines and made love I told you. What did I tell you? And when did I tell you? A long time ago. And then Gavin popped up and the family started a relationship again. For Levi, it's been 10 years, but for them, it's been a few days. So now, Eve is still hot off making decisions on who she's choosing, and, you know, she chooses her family, which I don't think Levi can blame her. But at the same time, we've seen before, Eve has a real commitment to the greater good as well. As much as she wants the best for her family... She also can't shirk off the weight of knowing that our actions and the actions of James can result in hundreds of thousands of people being killed and multiple disasters that are larger than anything we can ever imagine. Some of my favorite scenes are between Levi and Gavin. Will we see a bit more of their bromance and teaming up? I agree, that's part of my favorite scenes too. And I think if you were to ask Ian, he feels the same way. I think in the beginning, we really felt a lot of simpatico. And not only did we actually feel for each other the way that these characters are supposed to, but I think immediately we had a real affection for one another. And he's a sweetheart of a man. We both really enjoy the time that we get to hang out together, and did hang out a lot in Australia to build that friendship, which wasn't really hard work at all. So that's definitely something we asked for more of, and you're definitely going to get it. You guys were recently renewed for season three. Congrats. How are you feeling? It feels good. We work really hard and fans have really responded to the show. So it's nice to have a little bit more to cook up for them. There's still so much to happen. I leave you with those final words because some jaded folks on the forums are wondering why an actor would want to stay in such a bad show. Why would an actor want to be in an ensemble cast for a network television show that shoots in Australia and has fans that love what you're doing, even if it's sometimes silly and absurd? I mean, come on, the show is fun. And I don't know about you, but reality feels rough enough sometimes that a show about time travelers, sinkholes, and woolly mammoths feels pretty good. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Dr. Sophia Nathan in this episode, being that we're talking about an episode that aired on Valentine's Day. Of course, she's still in my heart, and I miss her presence in this show, but it's important to keep our hearts open. Who knows? Akira may come along and sweep me off my feet. And that's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for a double episode on February 21st, featuring a Ty and Para wedding, Veronica further digging into Aaron's connection to 10,000 BC, a shift in control, and, well, a, a swarm of bugs. If you like what you're listening to, you can rate us wherever you'd like to. Uh, if you have any questions or ideas, reach out via email at shout at y'all heard dot me. That is the email address. the parent podcast of this show y'all heard if you have a dollar to spare we are on patreon at patreon.com slash y'all heard otherwise enjoy yourself and don't forget to rsvp whether you want the chicken or the fish for the upcoming wedding reception